You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another podcast. Today is an exciting one. We have Richard Spears. And to start off, I want to say he has not seen our questions. He doesn't know what we're going to ask. I mean, a lot of times people do kind of have an idea of what we're going to ask. So this should be pretty exciting. Off the cuff with Richard. And many of you probably know him from Spears and Associates. And he also has a podcast of his own, The Drill Down Show. Richard has made a living understanding and explaining the oil field service and equipment industry to people trying to invest in ideas, companies, and technologies around the world. One thing that's pretty cool about Richard is some of his guiding principles that we wanted to share with you. He believes all men and women are created in the image of God. Life is short. Don't waste it. Be helpful to people. Powerful stories move people powerfully. And let your yes be your yes and your no be no, which I really like because I know how we can all be very indecisive. So thank you so much, Richard, for coming on today. I can't think of a better way to spend the next several minutes. So (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that means a lot. We feel special. (laughs) I don't have a lot of choices today. So (laughs) (laughs) all right. I'm a fan of you all because you all have attracted some of the oil and gas industry's leading talent, clearly the people who are changing the industry and are leading it into the modern era. So, you know, just to be part of that particular cadre is quite an honor. Thank you very much for making me, you know, the next one. Oh, thank you. We're we're so excited to have you on and so happy that you agreed to come on as well to share your oil field story. So let's get right into it. Who is Richard Spears? And what was life like growing up with a father like yours that was very entrepreneurial from a young age? And is he the reason behind both you and your brother's oil field career? Yeah, technically, if you look at the history of the company, I have my dad's old job. Maybe more precisely, my brother has my dad's old job. But, you know, I'm here in South Tulsa, Oklahoma. We grew up in East Tulsa, Oklahoma. If you were to go back to my old neighborhood, you would have to speak Spanish in that neighborhood. But, you know, dad in 1965 quit a pretty good job for a guy trying to raise a family of four kids. He had received an inheritance, a small inheritance from uh, as the result of the death of his father. And he had moved into the garage out behind the house to open up a shop as an industrial market research firm. It took about two or three years for that money to run out. And he still had four small kids at home, right, that they were trying to raise. But it was transformative for us because, you know, money was not plenteous. And we were driven to the point that if you want to have a little spending money, you've got to go make it. And money is really, quite literally, in America, just laying on the ground. You have to go, go and pick it up. In our case, my brother and I, He was 11, I was 10, we started a lawn mowing company. Dad loaned us, he didn't give us, he loaned us some money to buy an International Harvester Cub Cadet tractor. They were, they're yellow, they still are. And we started knocking on doors, getting getting jobs to mow lawns. And that lawn mowing company is now a global oil field equipment service market research firm. Wow. (laughs) Wow, what a transition. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing we say is that my brother and I started the company when, you know, when, when I was 10, but we let our dad run it for the first 20 years. And, uh, <laughs> okay. Which, you know, leads us to the next question. 
that Macy and I have been like very interested in. And it's how exactly did market research work in the seventies? I mean, today, when you look at it, you know, we have all these apps, we have all these ways to consolidate the massive amounts of data and the accessibility with the internet. How did you collect that data and where were you getting it from? I mean, was it calling people? Was it, you know, a phone book that got dropped off at the door? Like there's just so many different things that happened then than, than today. My father would typically leave on a Monday morning and come back on a Friday, and he would have spent the week in, say, Midland, Texas, where he would have started on the top floor of some office building and worked his way to the bottom floor of the office building, walked up and down the hall, poke his head in a somebody, well, I was going to say a guy's door, but that is exactly what it was. There was no women. He'd poke his head in a door and say, hey, I'm talking about drill bits if you got a couple of minutes. And dad ran, dad and his team ran that business like that all the way until about the year 2000. By then, my brother and I were part of it. But in the business of market research, what we do is we're measuring oil field equipment and services by product line all over the world. And it could be a drill, drill bits, or it could be directional drilling systems, or it could be wireline services, both open oil and case toll, or frack jobs, or offshore vessels, or whatever. And there's not really a button on your computer that you can press to pull up what's the drill bit market. You've got to go pull up, you got to go kick over a lot of rocks. You still do. And so, you know, and I know we no longer, you know, start on the top floor of a building in Midland, Texas and work our way down, but it's still a matter of communication and asking folks. Mm. It's the same business, just with less travel. Wow. That's so interesting. Sometimes looking back at the years, like how did people do it without their phones or without the internet? But, you know, people made it work. So it's pretty interesting. So like you mentioned, your dad kind of started what is now considered Spears and Associates in the 1960s. But you joined around in the 80s, if I'm correct, around the 80s, you joined your brother to kind of take over the family business. In between the 60s to the 80s, what were you doing? You obviously graduated engineering school and then you went to work for Halliburton. Can you talk a little bit about that time and why did you decide to leave Halliburton to come work with your dad? You didn't want to hear about me growing my hair long and living as a Swiss peasant, apparently. <laughs> it be part of the part of the background. We want to if hear it, all about yeah, it. Yeah, if it was, we're down for it. <laughs> That defined 1974, 1975. It was a, you know, these days people call it a gap year after you get out of high school and you go to a gap year. And mine was, it was probably a good idea that I didn't go straight to college because the way I've described it, if American high schools had had a 13th grade, (laughs) I would have graduated high school. I was, uh, it got worse and worse and worse. So I did, and I think I created the idea of a gap year. But that year helped me figure out what I really wanted to be, where I wanted to live, what I wanted to do. And it was clearly going to be engineering. It was going to be in the state of Oklahoma because that's where we're from. And I went back to Oklahoma State University and got an, you know, one of these rare degrees, an agricultural engineering degree, because I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to work for John Deere. I did not want to work in the oil and gas business because I saw how cyclic mm. this goofy industry is. But it turned out that, you know, I was about three months from graduating in 1979, and I got a job offer, great job offer from John Deere. And I went to Moline, Illinois in March of 1979 to go see where I was going to be working. And it was snowing, the whatever that river is, is it the Missouri or the Mississippi? I don't know. It was frozen. 
And the guy that picked me up, drove me up to the factory, was belching smoke. We get out of his old pickup truck. We go into this John Deere combine fabrication building. And he proudly says, Richard, this is where you're going to spend the rest of your life. <laughs> and I was thinking, I had the worst decision. Because <laughs> I thought ag engineers worked outside. I thought they worked on farms and things. Yeah. I outside job. So I said, thank you very much. I got back to Stillwater. I called my dad. I said, dad, I've really screwed up here. <laughs> well, I knew you were going to do that. And he said, here's a phone number. Call this guy at Halliburton. And actually gave me two phone numbers. A guy at Schlumberger and a guy at Halliburton. I called them both. I got the job at Schlumberger and at Halliburton at wireline, open old wireline engineer for Schlumberger in Fort Morgan, Colorado. And Halliburton, you know, field engineer in Enid, I took the job at Halliburton. So, and back in those days in the 70s, the field engineer at Halliburton would have the, the obligation and the expectation to go actually do every job the company did. There was no kid glove kind of a thing. You know, here, kid, my very first job at Halliburton was sweeping out the warehouse. And once I got good at that, it took a month. Then... They let me drive the forklift, which to this day was the very best promotion I've ever gotten. <laughs> what a promotion. Wow. Yeah. To drive the forklift. Who knew the steering wheels are on the back? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So how long did, was your gig at Halburn for? I was a short time guy because remember my dad's an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So I worked, I like to call it four years, two years of days and two years of nights. And while I was off skiing one weekend with my dad, he asked me, what do you guys talk about when you're not on a frack job or not cement the well? And I said, well, it's how to get a couple of pump trucks together and do it on our own. And so he said, well, I know a guy, you know, a bank. And so in 1981, right at the peak of that particular cycle that I hope never happens again, my brother and I and our dad bought some pump trucks and went into business against Halliburton right down the street in Enid, Oklahoma. Only got, you know, only got one cease and desist letter. But <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> everybody should get one of those from Halliburton at some point in their career. Yeah. So how did that work out for you? How long did y'all run your own business doing it the pump? We had two good months and it was a complete and utter total disaster for 10 years. It was... Oh, wow. It was awful. And, and I can smile now because it, it felt like it was, but my story is simply a tiny little piece of what happened to everybody in the industry from 1982 onward, which was the industry had built up so much capacity. It, it built up capacity in the United States that it could support 5,000 drilling rigs running. And then only a thousand drilling rigs were running. So what's all that equipment going to do? And what are all those people going to do? Mm -hmm. It makes the downturn that has just happened this past year mm -hmm. and the downturn that happened in 15 and 16, it looks like child's play mm -hmm. given the utter devastation for an entire decade that that happened. But even though I hated it at the time and it was really destructive to so many people and, and to me, it was that trial by fire that taught me both humility and humbleness. And it taught me that I am not the dictator of the universe. I don't, there's so many things I don't know. And if I presume that I do, then shame on me. 
So it, it was a very humbling time that's probably, no, no, probably, it set up everything good that has happened ever since. So, so during that time, were you still looking at other businesses or were y'all making money on the Spears and Associates data research? Like where, where was the money coming in if the environment was so bad during that time when you started the pump down business? Yeah, well, for, for me personally, we, we called that period of time graduate school because you know, graduate school's you know, French for unemployed. But yeah, the, the family market research firm back here in Tulsa was doing okay. And at that time, my brother had, had come back to help my dad because dad had actually sold his company and had only retained this tiny little piece of it. He had sold it to his employees. But the 80s had crushed the market research firm as well. And ultimately, the employees he sold it to lost the business. So, you know, here I am part of a company, a family business that actually failed in the 80s. And so the employees were unable to complete their buyout of my father after several years. He got the right back to do it. And it was about that time that I was finishing up or almost finishing up with a graduate degree. And I came back to work to launch a project for him that, by the way, it also failed. So I had this stunning track record of the 80s and 70s that were, that were just failure after failure. It was really character building. How did you overcome that at that time? Like I know myself, if my businesses were kept falling around me and I was failing and maybe not even making enough money, you know, to sustain, what made you keep pushing forward? Because, you know, today that's not the case. And that happens a lot with entrepreneurs where they get through that hard time and then, you know, they flourish at the end. What do you think kept you going? You know, I'm facing that right now. You know, later on this afternoon, I'm going to go have a beer with my oldest son who takes what his grandfather did and, and what me and his uncle do. And he multiplies this entrepreneurial thing like by a hundred. But these true entrepreneurs take things super, super personally, largely, right? Mm -hmm. And your identity is wrapped up in the success of an idea that you had or of a business that you had. And, and that's where the problem rises, right? It's really what shaped me and it helped me understand that that my value, and this is where I'm going to get all Christian on you, but it's, it's where I realized that my value is not in me and me alone and my really great ideas and whether I perceive that I succeed or fail. It has nothing to do with that. There is an external truth mm -hmm. there, and I am a participant in it. And whether I'm good looking or not good looking, whether I'm rich or poor, whether people know me or they don't know me, has nothing to do with it. It is not me. I am here to simply do the best I can. And if I, and it is my fault if I get wrapped up in having my self-worth and my happiness tied up in the success of an idea. It helps to come from a family that has alternatives. And so, you know, it's not like if the business failed, I was going to starve to death and have to live in a van down by the river. The coincidence is, however, that these days in the time of COVID, a year ago, my wife and I bought a small Winnebago Travato. And occasionally we go live in that van down by the river. <laughs> that's awesome. So, I mean, you know, you have it, you have your out plan if you need it, right? That, that's pretty low, expensive, low cost. <laughs> Weapons, you know, ammunition. I'm ready to go. So. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. But you truly have that entrepreneurial story, which like Jamie said, 
it's very glorified. I feel even like nowadays, I feel like everybody because of social media wants to be an entrepreneur because they've glorified it in a way with look at me, everyone just sees the success, but no one knows how hard it was, how many failures there were, how many times you almost gave up. And then you became successful. But people just look at the end and say, I want to be an entrepreneur. When in reality, like you said, it's been years and years and years of putting a lot of work into this. You have learned that lesson very early in life. And, and what I wonder is, is we work in an industry that's full of oil field salesmen. I'm going to use that as a generic. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a group of people who are actually very comfortable with failure. Because how many, how many rejections do you get? And yet oh, yeah. they wake up and you go do it exactly again. That's one of the reasons why I'm just a real fan of this industry because it's full of people who that's just the world we live in. And how about this? On the oil and gas side, on the producer side, how many dry holes do you, how many times do you punch a hole in the ground? How many times do you crack job not exactly go like you want? Unsuccessful wells or having to, you know, change your design on the fly or a well that you thought was going to be great and it turned out being a disaster, having to side. I mean, there's so many things. It's so true. Many things. And, and we are, as an industry, have the pleasure of getting that feedback right away. And how many other industries get that complete pleasure of that? And, and if you're uncomfortable with that immediate feedback, and a lot of it can be pretty harsh, the well didn't work, fracture failed, the blender broke down, the, the wireline tools, you know, the yeah. plug didn't separate from the bottom. And the, we get it right away. So if you are comfortable with that or you can deal with it, what a great place to work. If you're not comfortable with it, it's not your place. Yeah. You don't belong here. I've never looked at it that way. And being on the wireline and frack side, I mean, I've really had to adjust and understand, oh, there's an issue. Okay. The best thing we can do is how are we going to mitigate this issue moving forward and move past it and continue down hole? Because that's ultimately what we have to do. And we can't dwell on that problem that arose. So that's very true. I like how you said that. You can't deny the problem either. I mean, you may want to say it's that other person's fault, but the reality is now it's everybody's problem. We are going to deal with this. And the hero is the one who solves the problem. True. So that's why I really like this industry. Well, we want to jump into the 2000s because a lot happened for your business and you guys seem to have adapted, shifted. A lot of new things were launched. So for example, you guys mentioned you launched the drilling and completion cost service, which is a quarterly service that tracks the cost of drilling and completion wells basin by basin across the U.S., which is still used widely today. And you also launched Oilfield Market Intelligence Service, which supplies oil companies, service companies, and other major investors with immediate market analysis on oilfield companies, product lines, and technology trends, which is still widely used all the time as well. So these two big launches that you guys put in the 2000s, can you talk about how that was developed why did you guys decide to go that direction? Obviously, there was a lot going on in the 2000s with digital, but it seems that the pivot and adapting that you guys did in the 2000s really helped make you even more successful because they're still widely used today. So can you talk a little bit about how that direction was, how you put that idea together and how you made it happen? And also, how many people does it take to come out with these you know, these launches with these services, how long does it take to come out with a quarterly report, for example, and, you know, the end product for customers? If you were to back up to, you know, the 80s, even though I, don't, I try not to live in the 80s, <laughs> the, it's useful for comparison. 
the market research firm that dad started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, back when he was running things, depended upon the telephone ringing and, and being engaged by typically an oilfield service company to go count the number of, you know, ball valves are in West Texas or count the number of something. But it required the phone ringing and then mobilizing everybody to go do the thing that the client wanted you to go do. In the 80s, when my brother did come back here to kind of split his time between our pump truck company and, and helping our father, my brother put together this forecast of drilling activity that's called the Drilling and Production Outlook. We abbreviated the DPO. And we put that out there as a subscription service. And what we noticed, we're kind of slow, but even we can notice this, that even though the rest of the industry would just ratchet up and down, the phone would quit ring, and then it would ring like crazy. The forecast, the drilling forecast, the DPO, its subscriber base every year grew a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it grew for 10 years, and it grew for 20 years, and it grew for 30 years. It just continues to grow, and it waffles just ever, just a little bit. So, you know, we're overeducated. We're kind of global people. And we said, how can we do more of that? Mm -hmm. And in 19... 96, I think it was, we had FMC Corporation call us and they said, you know, we've been paying Simmons and company, you know, great investment banking firm. We've been paying them a hundred grand a year to take a look at, take a snapshot of these 10 oil field equipment and service markets. The hundred grand sounds like a lot. Can you guys do this? And we said, well, how hard could that be to do? So we said, look, we'll do it for you know, pick a number out of the sky, 25,000. And we did it and realized that one of it was a product line that Schlumberger had. So for us to figure out this one product line inside Schlumberger, we had to figure out the entire 20 things that Schlumberger did. Mm -hmm. And we said, well, if we know what those, you know, the other 19 are, I wonder what, I wonder who else is in those 19 businesses. It was the birth of our oil field market report. What we did was we went back to FMC and we said, you know how we said we're going to charge you $25,000? We're actually going to charge you nothing because we'd like the right to turn this into a subscription report. That subscription report is still out there. It's global. Everybody uses it on the planet. It's the goose that lays little golden eggs for us all the time. And from that are now you know, like 17 more sub-reports that oh, wow. are there. Whereas 30 years ago, 95% of our revenue came from the phone ringing, please do a market mm -hmm. job, job for us. Today, 10% of our revenue comes from somebody calling us saying, please go to work. The other 90% is this bulletproof subscription thing that, you know, it's global, it's specific. And so far, nobody does it. I'm stunned mm -hmm. that all these years, nobody competes with us in these things. Yeah, I was going to say, you're really the only one that I can think of when it comes to that market research report style. So unlike it, the oil and gas service companies, you have no competition yeah. <laughs> or little. You know, you asked, you know, how many people does it take? There's my brother and I, we're both, you know, oil field engineers. And we have two other guys named David. That way I only have to remember one name. <laughs> and one David Hutchison is in Houston and the other David Ott is in Fort Worth. And both Davids are 45-year veterans of the oil and gas industry who we've known and have been best friends forever since we were puppies. And between the four of us and then our colleague, Missy Parker, here in the Tulsa area, 
that's the five of us who are responsible for kicking over all the rocks, making decisions about those little dollars and cents. How many, what do we plug in each little cell for each company? There are other people who play a support role and fill in things. You know, Katie Bewley works here in Tulsa and she's our client. She's the face to all of our clients. And just, you know, and, and, and we have Chris Ingram here who, who runs the office. And then, you know, you said that the drilling cost study, it's actually run by a, a great colleague of ours who works off of his farm in Missouri. So the way we're able to build a moat around what we do is because it still all depends on knowing somebody and talking to somebody mm-hmm. and doing that thousands and thousands of times a year. Because unlike, you know, like our, you know, I'm a subscriber to the Drilling Info Database, or mm-hmm. I can never pronounce their name, Inverus? Yes, we have that yeah. too. And- <laughs> Allen's company. And I love what they've done by being able to track on an instantaneous basis where every drilling rig is, and then how they sync that up with any with the permits that have been filed and make that available to you. It's just a really great, great service. But quick, who's the submitter on the Latchaw 14 drilling rig? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who's got the drill bit on it? Who's the mud company? And so that's what we do. We, mm-hmm. we, we fill in all the other gaps. For that. And, and for that, you're right. You do have to have the connection to that rig, to that frat crew, or you know, to the owner of whoever is over that project for you to actually have that information. You know, we have our little, you know, secret methods. You know, I'm not, here's a little secret. When a company is, you know, privately held small, one product line and one location, and it's very, very difficult for us to figure out how that company does I will actually park across the street and count the cars in the parking lot. I will absolutely. Really? I love that. It's so, it's so like back to your roots. Like this is how you actually get real information. That's how you don't have it. it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It is. It's, it's, it's awesome. You just have to have the, the will and the system to do that and repeat it, you know, every three months or six months. So it, we are just on this system that everything we do is updated every quarter. Here's the other little secret about it. The history, the past has absolutely no value to anybody. Mm. To, be, to have exactly perfect information about what happened in 2020 mm-hmm. has no value to, to today. anybody. Mm-hmm. Because who is out there making a decision? That's who wants this. Mm-hmm. I don't care what happened. In fact, at this point, I don't even care what happened in the first quarter of 2021. Yeah. But looking ahead. It's always what matters ahead. And so the true people, those people who you've already had on your on the call, they may spend five or 10% of their time talking about what has happened. And the rest of the time, it's trying to figure out how to be ready to implement this for tomorrow and next year. That's what everything's all about. And so that's where our firm tries to live and breathe. You got to pay attention to history. That has no value. None. Well, not to go back in time, but in 2019, you did mention that the industry was overbuilt for the foreseeable future. And we're really noticing that Macy and I both work on the service sector. You know, you see a lot of consolidation on operator side. You see the overabundance amount of supply and equipment with not the amount of work that we can, you know, actually match up the equipment to the amount of wells that need to be put on production. It just doesn't, it's not equal. We see that a lot on the frack side and the completion side. I'm sure, I mean, we see it on the drilling side with the drilling rigs and the amount of directional companies there are, amount of drill bit companies there are. 
in order for us to compete, it's been a very price-driven market. The whole 2020, 2019, it was just prices were falling. And now the only way to sustain is to actually get some sort of that margin back. You know, and COVID had a huge pressure on us, like it's a thumb down on us for that. So, you know, what can, you know, North America market alone, what can we do? Like what can companies do in order to, you know, make the future, you know, more abundant. Cause right now I feel like everybody's just holding on by a thread. And that's correct. There's been a war of the balance sheets. Anybody with a poor balance sheet or too much debt is no longer in control of their own destiny. But the majority of those adjustments occurred by Christmas time, 2020, so that we could all kind of start the new year with a clean sheet of paper. You know, next year, your company is in excellent shape. You've got very smart leadership and the work you do is, is highly rated. So, you know, nicely done for that. But the fact remains that the North American market had, what, 500 frack spreads available and it's got 200 and something running. Mm-hmm. So I'm no good at math, but mm-hmm. it's like you've got twice as many trucks as the world would like to have. And on the wireline side, the ratio is actually worse. Yes. You probably have three times as many, you know, case wireline trucks as you need to get the work done. But the beautiful thing about the frack business is, is it sure wears stuff out quick. You know, I'm in the drill bit business. I'm on the board of a drill bit company. And, and it, you know, the drill bit business in the U.S. is a rental market. So you've got a whole fleet of drill bits that as long as they're there and they're already made, well, you'd get whatever cash you can by running the drill bit. Because you don't really, you, can, you repair them, but you sure don't build another one. But eventually, you go into the shop to go find a drill bit that's of that size with that gauge and those things, and there's no drill bits there. And it's at that point you get to do the wonderful conversation with the drilling engineer customer and say, you know how you wanted that drill bit from me? I don't have one. I've got to go build it. And where I would have rented it to you for $4,000 a day or whatever the number is, the new one is going to be $10,000 a day. And once all drill bit companies are in that same boat, the price rises. Same with the frack business. Mm. I think you've got another year, but once the year happens, you've chewed through all those pump trucks. To me, the phenomenon going on in the frack industry that's wearing trucks out faster than anything has got to be this simul frack phenomenon that's going on. As a former rock mechanics guy, I cringe at this thing, simul frack. I understand why they're doing it. It's so funny that you even brought that up. We just presented on that today to a client. <laughs> did you but, that it's a bad idea for the rock or what did you say? Oh, well, oh, you yeah. know, you can, you can get a lot done faster. How about that? <laughs> a lot done faster. So, what, I mean. What done? And that's the thing too, honestly, you know, taking away from what I'm saying has nothing to do with next year. It's just my own thought is when you are doing something like Simulfrack, I feel like you're running through inventory that you really don't have a lot left anyway. So like, why do you want to run through inventory? Now, like I said, that's just my own opinion. It's nothing to do with next year, but it's definitely a battle between that, you know, dual fuel fleets, electrical fleets. Like what is the future? Is it going to be tier four? Are we all going to have, you know, regulating our emissions? Is that how we're going to get the work? It's how to create yourself. I mean, it's, there's so many questions that I don't really think anybody has an answer to, but, and to your point, I started in drill bits. So I totally get the fact that it's, I mean, you have a product, you drop it off. There's no back end service. Like there is, I've got like 30 guys out there, you know, it's a service you're out there all day. So it's just a little bit different as far as product versus service. Yeah. We have a challenge in our industry, the way we have priced 
things the way we've chosen to price things, but it is, it is quite literally what it is and it won't change. So you, so you figure out a way to fix it. What I'm hoping is, is that because the banks of the world are currently pretty closed to everything oil and gas, that that's actually a very, very good thing. If you had right now the, the lenders and the private equity folks and all the various ways you can get capital to come into the industry, if it liked the oil and gas industry, it would be flowing in right now in boatloads, mm-hmm. but it's not. And it's causing the industry to have to have the incredible discipline, starting with the oil companies themselves. They're having some of the best quarters and days they've ever had in your career time. And then the service companies themselves can't go build, you know, I can't go build you an all electric fleet because I got all these old, you know, tier two and tier four engines that I got to run through first. Otherwise, my shareholders are going to line me up and shoot me mm-hmm. for having you know, spent capital that I don't have on this. And so I think it's a really, I think it's actually very, very healthy for the industry that the banks remain closed for another year, maybe two, so that we become the most profitable industry in the world, even more profitable than tobacco, because that attracts good investors to our industry. So banks are closed, can't grow. Oil's going to go to, you know, I'm stick my neck out, 150. And the industry will make so much money during that period of time. And capital won't flow in for a while until, until the world is so short of the product that we make mm-hmm. that the mindset changes. Mm. I like your thought process on that. Yeah, I'm interested to see what the next five to 10 years are going to look like for the oil and gas industry for sure. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but I always have. I think you have to, I think you have to be on the team in order to stay in this yeah. And yeah, part of us, part of it is us deluding ourselves that, you know, that the future is going to be bright. But you know, everybody on this, the three of us, we're all very good at math, very good at physics, and you know can't look at what people try to speak into existence at the denial of physics and say it can actually happen. Physics and economics. Last time I checked, those are two really important areas areas of study. If you try to change the world denying those two things, it's only going to, it won't happen. No, totally agree. So kind of have two questions in one, but it's rare to see two brothers work and own a business together for so many years without one of you just saying, see you later. Don't ever talk to me again. You know, like that dynamic must be really good. So how has it been working with your brother who's in your in the room, probably like staring at you? <laughs> how has that been? And then also, it's so cool to see a family go take on what their dad built and kind of take it to the next level. How has that been with your expectations with your kids, with you know, did you expect the same thing? And like, who's going to take over Spears? We've spoken with you before. Your kids are doing way cooler things outside of an oil and gas. So I don't blame them for not wanting to come over. But how has that dynamic been in terms of, will one of you come, you know, learn what we're doing? Or, you know, how's that dynamic? The important thing is that my brother and I don't vacation together. (laughs) Expectation (laughs) for that. In fact, only on major holidays, you know, we pick one holiday and we'll go over to his house in the next year, they'll come over to our house. So there's, 
you know, we, we don't mingle, you know, our personal lives very much. Clearly, we're all related. Clearly. And my brother and I work very well together because he and I are not alike. If you've ever watched or listened to what we do now, that's very visible on the podcast. We do sort of look alike, but he's clearly, you know, we, we're not alike. We used, to, we used to have bird dogs years and decades ago. And you, always, you tend to have two bird dogs, one that'll work in close and one that'll just range really far afield. And if we were bird dogs, he'd be the one that works in close and, and actually flushes the birds out. But I'd be the one ranging far afield and going, hey, I think they're over there. So, <laughs> so it's, a, it's a very good so The part. personalities have just worked out really well. I don't know how mom and dad worked that out to make that happen, but <laughs> it has been the way. So my brother has two kids. One of them works, well, no, actually both work for the billionaire here in Tulsa. And even though they are both very much in the energy space, in the investment side, they don't have a, a desire to come back to work for our family business. I have three kids. And as you know, you two and I've spoken about our, our daughters in the, she's in the entertainment world, so she ain't coming back. Our oldest son, he started and launched the, the data mining company that feeds a lot of the US related stuff into our business. But he's got so many other things going on that he has staff. And our middle son, he's actually going to go out tomorrow and check rigs for me in Oklahoma. So oh, that's awesome. He, he was, by the way, a, a directional drilling engineer and you know, has a mechanical engineering degree. He's the one I thought was going to be my replacement, but he'd rather be the lead guitar player in a, in a dance band. <laughs> that's awesome. Millennials, right? Millennials. <laughs> what are they thinking about? But he actually does. I mean, he, for oil field service companies, does take his, he does, you know, photography and, you know, drone photography and then does training videos for, for folks, but that's on his own. He'd still rather be a lead guitar player. Well, Richard, I mean, you have said some amazing things so far. So our last question, knowing what you know now, you know, if you could do things over again, what would you have changed? Oh, man. Never started that pump company? <laughs> well. <laughs> that actually helped you for who you are today, actually. <laughs> you know, there's a constant theme in my life of trying a bunch of stuff and having a whole bunch of failures. And, you know, yeah, what I wouldn't do. I'll give you this one. You know, over the last 20 years, because my brother and I and our team work on so many M&A transactions, we, you know, we're called in to support a lot of transactions in the oil field side, that sometimes at the end of a project, we'll approach our private equity client and say, you know, the company that we're looking at and the management team that runs that company and you guys, the private equity firm, you line up so well that we'd like to take off our consultant hat and instead put on our co-investor hat. And if we put on our co-investor hat, we'll put our family money into this business, but I'd like to have a board seat that goes along with it if you'd find it useful. Not that we put in that much money, but, you know, it's enough money for us to pay attention to. And so we've probably done about 20 of those deals all over the planet at this point. And I've sat on a bunch of boards. I sit on them now. There's the ones that I shouldn't have done were the ones where we didn't actually know what the business really was. You know, there was one that was a pipeline construction company. And the reality is I thought, hey, how hard could it be? You drill the well and you got to hook it up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Chicago. So that's pipeline. So clearly I got to know something about that. Bad, bad idea. <laughs> Did I say bad idea? That was a bad idea. And, and then other things is, 
you know, you look at these companies that you could possibly invest in and, you know, you, you got to really know the character of the people who you're buying it from mm-hmm. and are they truly trustworthy? And anytime I've got that little nagging thing in my head that says, yeah, I don't know, I should have run away. Mm. So, you know, are there things I wish I hadn't invested in? Yeah, because, you know, we lose the entire investment at that point, but some are such home runs that it's worth 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 the risk. Mm -hmm. That reminds me so much of Shark Tank. (laughs) Oh, golly. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm watching them pick who they want to invest in and not. Um, I'm mesmerized by those folks. And (laughs) when I bought the Winnebago, I bought it from Camping World because Marcus Lemonis on Shark Tank, he's the CEO of Camping World. So I said... I can call him when I got a complaint. <laughs> I have. So. Oh, man. Richard, you are awesome. I mean, your personality, I just love it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and bringing humor. And also, you know, you were great answering the questions on the fly. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. And for everything you do for the industry, like you said, you're passionate about this industry. So are we, the mm-hmm. people in it, we rock, but... Like we know, there's just still so many things that are going on. And I'm excited to see what the next five to 10 years, you know, happen, especially here in North America and how we're going to handle these next few years. But we'll yeah, be hey. watching out those reports from you. I would, yeah. Those forecasts. I would far rather be in the industry in May 2021 because the next five years are bound to bring incredible fortune to people who've stuck it out this far. And don't listen to what those yahoos in the electric vehicle world. Yeah. You heard it here first on the podcast. Last question. Will oil hit a hundred dollar barrel again? 150. Oh, I like that. Here first on flipping the barrel from Richard Spears. Thank you so much. And we really appreciate you coming on.